This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm the host, Kevin Randall. I'll be joined momentarily by Rob Zwiatek, and we're going to be talking about where ufology is going. But before we do, I just wanted to make some comments. I've, I've heard some people respond to my displeasure with uh, the way things are in the publishing industry, I guess we would say. People can um, um, review a book and have it published for all the world to see. And I understand, and I'll say this once again, I understand that you could write the best book in the world. There's going to be people who don't like it. And there's going to be people who love it. You can see it in the dichotomy of the, of the reviews. What I object to is people who give bad reviews to books who don't bother to read them, that just don't like the topic, don't like the uh, cover of the book, don't like the author. One guy in uh, one of in a review of one of my books, was annoyed that the um, book came in a damaged state. The cover had been bent or something. Like, I'm responsible for that. I had nothing to do with that, and yet he's downgrading the book because he didn't like the condition it was in. Uh, somebody else complained there weren't enough pictures in a, one of the books. And I'm thinking, pictures, what are you? In kindergarten, you need pictures for a book? You're lucky there's any in there. If I had my way, there'd be a lot fewer pictures in the book. Anyway, the point simply is, if you're going to review a book, at least read the book and give it an honest review. If you don't like it, that's fine, but give some legitimate reasons for not liking it. Not that um, there weren't enough pictures or something like that. But we'll move on from that. As I mentioned, Rob Zwiatek is my guest, and he has told me that he would like to do his own biography, his own introduction. So Rob Zwiatek, take it away. Well, you, were, you were serious about that. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, thank you for inviting me on the show. It's a pleasure to be on here at the beginning of the year. It's, it's always great. Uh, yeah, I will give just a brief bio because I've been on your show a few times and I think people have heard the old bio. And so nonetheless, it hasn't changed too much. I basically have a background in science and uh, earth science and physics. And I spent my career at the United States Patent and Trademark Office in Virginia. And concurrent with my employment with the, with the Patent Office, and even before that, I was interested in the UFO subject. So I've been in it, maybe not, not, not as long as Kevin, but uh, I came, came in at the end of the 60s, and I've been involved uh, ever since that point, one way or another, either in research on my own, but most of it with uh, nonprofit UFO organizations, beginning with the Fund for UFO Research, and then in 2003 or 2004 or something like that, I was asked to be on the board of the Mutual UFO Network. And I've remained there uh, since that time and uh, have been involved uh, in all phases of ufology one way or another over the years. Uh, they, they reach out and grab you. So that's a brief biography in a, in a nutshell or a saucer shell or whatever you prefer. Well, have you done any personal investigations in the field work? Uh, out the investigate um, sightings? I, I haven't actually been a field investigator. Actually, early on in, 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 with MUFON, yes, I did, I did some actual investigations. But once I got with the, then moved to Virginia to work and started with the, uh, with the patent office, I did not do field investigations. I more or less concentrated just on, on, on the research and, and, the, and the running of the, uh, of the organizations. Well, when you say research, what exactly did that entail? Well, the research might involve... Huh, be, being on site in Roswell as a, a, the crash site or the debris field, whatever it's now being called, I was there. I have interviewed dozens and dozens and worked with dozens and dozens of abductees or experiencers over the years for the ambient monitoring project that was a part of the, uh, the Fund for UFO Research and the UFO Research Coalition. So yes, you're, 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 I, I'm, in, I'm dragged in that way in, in, in that kind of research. Then of course, I've done my own through studying files and 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 
uh, and individual reports to give talks and, and things like that? Well, I think one of the things we miss in UFO research that we don't do properly is look at the old files and look at the information that has been gathered by so many different organizations, be they governmental or private. Um, I, going through the Blue Book files, find some very interesting cases by going through those, those files that just people have overlooked. And I think that's a, an important part of UFO research now. To, in, in today or in, in the past, it should have been an important part of research. What do you think? Uh, I, I agree with you 1,000%. I've done the same thing in my life, and, and it really disturbs me when I see people, and I'll name some names here, uh, Lou, El, Lou Elizondo, for example, or Avi Loeb, who se seemingly, Avi Loeb has said he doesn't want to be bothered with old sightings. And okay, he deigned to look at one or two of the old sightings, and, and, and he couldn't explain one or the, these one or two he chose. But basically, he said, I don't want to have anything to do with old sightings. That's ancient history. Don't bother me with that. I want to start off anew on that. And I, and I got the same kind of feeling about this from Lou, Lou Elizondo when I spoke with him and when I have since heard him speak. I don't think he knows anything about what transpired sightings-wise in the UFO field since 1947. And yet, as you say, it's, it's vitally important to study these old sightings because it's amazing how some very obscure details continue to show up year after year after year and in, in, indicative to me at least of a real phenomenon. Well, I know when I spoke to Avi Loeb and I pressed him on that point about looking at some of the old sightings and thinking that there's some very good research that has been done. Granted, a great deal of the research done, especially by the civilians, even the military for that matter, wasn't all that great. They were all kind of locked up in their own bias. I think some of the military people were of the attitude, well, there's nothing here and I can't understand why I'm wasting my time. In fact, one of the last cases in the Blue Book files, if you read the, the case, the major who was conducting the investigation, you can see in his report that he was just annoyed at having to investigate this UFO site. But I, I can kind of understand where Loeb's coming from because he's kind of looking in a different direction for the information. He's looking outward away from Earth at the objects that are transiting the, the solar system, looking for the, the thing like the, uh, that came through the, through the solar system a couple of years ago. He's looking for more of those sorts of things. And the UFO phenomenon as it has been uh, collected in the past doesn't really address that. So I can kind of understand that attitude. But since then, he's also, as you said, kind of looked at some of this stuff. And I thought maybe looking at cases like Leveland where you have the object interacting with the environment through the electromagnetic effects may provide some clues that would be necessary and help for his study. I would, I would completely agree. And I'm, I'm not saying there's 100,000 cases that are on the level, on the level of level end, if I can say that, but there are dozens and dozens and dozens that have received competent investigations over the, the seven decades now of UFO reports that, that one can fall back on to 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 ascertain at least in your own mind whether or not something is going on here that's not prosaic or not uh, meteorological or hoaxing or whatever that's a real unknown phenomenon in my case it's in, in my opinion it's an unknown phenomenon that's got an intelligence behind it but that's i think what the reports would show you well is, is there a specific case that you find particularly persuasive well, I, yeah, that's, that, that, that is a good question. There's not just one case I, I fall back on. I point to a panoply of cases like the Leveland cases, uh, the, the Father Gill sighting, for example, the Socorro case, the Delphos case, the Tronzon Provence case, uh, we, you know, on and on, Rendlesham, uh, on and on we can go with, uh, with a litany of cases. But all these things take time to look into and, and to, to read about. And, and so it's, it's far easier to just, have done with it all and move on to just what, what you want to study and, and not have anything to do with history. Well, I think my audience is probably well aware of what Socorro is. They're being browbeaten by Level and by me <laughs> repeatedly. Of course, they, they, they look at the Roswell case. What about the Father Gill case? I don't think we've ever really discussed that here. And, and can you give me a little bit of background on the Father Gill case? Yeah, the Father Gill case occurred, I think it was in the, in the summer of very late summer of very late spring of 1959, early summer of 1959 in, in Papua New Guinea. I think you're, you're probably familiar with that, at least, Kevin, where over the course of several days, an Anglican uh, priest at a mission there 
along with many of his uh, congregants, I guess might be a good word of putting it, good way of putting it, observed objects, objects very close to the, to the mission, hovering above the mission for at least hours at a time, and maybe 500, 600 feet up in the sky. And clearly beings could be seen on the, on the outside perimeter of this sort of circular discoidal object. They were fiddling around with instruments, lights were shining up in the sky. They, they waved it down at the people at the mission who waved back at them. And, and, and there was sort of a visual communication, if you will. And two nights this occurred, I think, with the, with the object that, that had the beings on it. But there had been uh, lead up in sightings before that as well on other parts of the uh, island. A anyhow, I, I just think it's a, not, not everyone would agree with me, I'm sure, but the, the testimony of the people who were there was consistent. Uh, what was a, um, obviously multi-witness sighting, uh, very close up. And uh, the reputation of Father Gill and, and, and he vouched for his uh, parishioners, all those reputations were very good. So it's, it's another brick in the wall of, uh, of great cases that, in my opinion, show that we're dealing with a very, very unusual phenomenon. I look at um, multiple chains of evidence when I'm looking at a case, and it sounds to me like in this case, we have a single chain of evidence, which is merely the testimony of the people Correct. who witnessed it. It didn't land and leave landing traces. There were no photographic uh, picture, who photographic pictures, what other kind would there be? Pictures taken, there were no um, instrument readings available. Uh, so you've got just the testimony of the, the witnesses. And to me, that would make it a, a little bit of a weaker case simply because you don't have these additional factors. Well, well, of course, mo most cases in that, that have been investigated by NICAP and MUFON and APRO are either single or multiple witness cases without other lines of evidence, as you, you put it. That's just the way the world works. The, the cases where they leave physical evidence, either on a person's body or they affect an automobile or leave marks in the ground, are rarer. But yeah, obviously, there, there's... <laughs> far more to fall back on those cases to, to show that something truly odd occurred. Well, the cases you mentioned all had sort of multiple chains except for the Father Gill case. I, just, mm -hmm. I, I point that out for no other reason than I just kind of mm -hmm. struck me like that. Well, I could have picked the Kenneth Arnold case, for example, and we were dealing with one person here, but, but I think that too is a fantastically good case. And, but, uh, but, but let me interrupt because we're not really dealing with a single person there because there was a guy named uh, what Fred Johnson. Oh, Johnson. Okay, yeah, you, you are correct. And, and he reported him. an electromagnetic effect with uh, with his sighting, which took place within minutes of um, mm -hmm. the Arnold sighting. So you've got independent witnesses with an electromagnetic effect. So I think that makes it a little bit stronger case. Yeah, uh, I Johnson, I think his name was just a great, great, uh, great, great witness in that sense. But even Arnold by himself, if we didn't have uh, the, the, the second witness who, who came forth sometime later, I, again, I, I just go, I think Arnold was, uh, was a man of, of truth and what he had to say about the sightings and, and how he approached the sighting looking out the window of his aircraft, pulling the window down and everything like that in his very precise description was a nice lead off case for the UFO subject. Well, and I would argue one other point on, on the Arnold case is that when he was interviewed by uh, Davidson and Brown, the military officers from Fourth Air Force, he asked them about some of the other cases and they talked about the Rhodes photograph from Phoenix mm -hmm. on July 7th and saying, showing what it looked like. And it looked an awful lot like his initial description of uh, the objects he had seen. So, you know, there we have, Mm -hmm. Another point of, I guess, uh, evidence helping with that specific case. Correct. Yeah, these heel-shaped objects, to this very day, they still sort of show up in, in sightings. And th this kind of thing particularly intrigues me because an an another weird type of case that I've lately been trying to collect examples of, but they occur throughout UFO history, are objects that are seen, uh, hopefully by multiple witnesses in a lot of cases, but sometimes they're not. Are, are objects that are shaped like crystals or, or, or faceted gems, this type thing. Well, let me, interrupt you. Let, let me interrupt you there because I'm going to have to take a break. And sure. When we come back, we'll talk about that. I, I noticed a trend toward triangles. So I think that's you know, another thing that we need to discuss where ufology is kind of going today. For those of you paying attention, 
This is a different perspective on the Exome Broadcast Network. I'm here with Rob Zwiatek. As you can see, we're distance uh, practicing social distancing. We keep it all in uh, proper perspective. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. And welcome back. I am again, Kevin Randall. I am here with Rob Zwiatek. We are talking well, more about history of ufology than I really kind of uh, planned on. I was gonna go more toward where the trends are going in ufology today with some of the things that are going on with Congress and the uh, federal government. But when we went away, we did sort of move in that direction. Rob, you were gonna talk about a trend you saw that where the objects being reported are more crystalline shaped or crystal-like. Yeah, they, crystal shape might be a good good way of putting it. They're not always transparent, but these kind of objects have shown up again from the dawn of the UFO age. They're rare. I'm not going to say that they're common or frequent or anything like that, but they're more than just triangular objects, uh, Kevin. They, they tend to be faceted objects like octahedrons, you know, eight-sided things with uh, tops and bottoms uh, or, or prismatic type objects, might, might be a hexagon. They're either elongated or, or sometimes they're, they're in a, a more of a, a, a square shape, you know, a square with the corners all cut off or something like this. But I only bring up these cases because not only, as I mentioned, are they, do they keep being seen, but they really make no sense aerodynamically. They're easy cases for skeptics to attack because it doesn't make any sense. Who flies around in some kind of a craft that looks like a jewel? And this is what these things sometimes are described as jewel-like with <laughs> faceted ends and, and facets along the longitudinal axis and transverse facets and this type of thing. They make no sense, but despite that, they keep being reported. And uh, I, I just find them completely intriguing. Well, could that be a matter of perspective where the witness happens to be standing and where the object happens to be, they're getting a a bizarre perspective of what the craft really looks like. I, I, I don't know how many perspectives you, you know. You can look at a cube, but you can't make a cube into an octahedron. You know, with 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 uh, planar and and oblique uh, faces on them. Uh, they in these cases, the most most of them that are reported are, are fairly close uh, encounters where someone sees it at the end of their driveway. A man in England uh, in 2020 someone threw a skylight in his house and he saw it as being just maybe 50 feet above his house. That clearly described the, the number of faces and, 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 and the way this thing looked. And then it just wasn't there. It, it, he went to get a camera or some damn thing and he came back and of course it's then going to be gone. But he was close enough to distinguish a, a square or a sphere from something that had uh, looked like a, a, a diamond set in a ring, this type thing. I, believe me, Kevin, I, I, I can't say I can make sense of these cases. I merely point them out to you. Well, I would ask, how big was this object we saw? Well, I, do I have the, I, I could have the, I had a little thing on, on this case I was going to look at, but rather than, than, than just tie everybody up, it, it was a number of feet in diameter, five to 10 feet in diameter. It was very close to his, to, to his window right, right it, above his house. It was large enough for somebody to be inside is what I was getting at. Is well, I don't know, but I, two feet. I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was large enough for a person to fit inside, but it wasn't a, a miniature thing, two or three inches long. It, it had a number of feet in, in, in along its major dimensions. Some some years ago, people saw one at the end of their driveway, and this, this thing was fifteen to twenty feet long. It was more elongated, cigar-like, with actual facets around the sides and on the ends. Did it just disappear too, or did they it, see it, it this one? Yeah, this this one actually just navigated off and flew away, and it disappeared over a tree line or something like that. And these witnesses, I think, were coming home from someplace, or they just stepped out on their driveway to get into their car. But it was another close-range sighting. There was another great one in England in the early years of, of, of the 1950s, where military people, a military person, saw this thing hovering over a uh, sort of like a campground that he was staying at, and he describes it very explicitly and this this thing too rotated and, and the, the sun was reflecting off the facets as it as it as it was rotating um i'm puzzled by it all that doesn't make any sense that you would fly from some point out in the galaxy 
in, in, in an object it looks like a jewel. Jewels don't uh, don't develop a lift like the like an airfoil does. There's never any uh, exhaust or, or or anything being expelled from these objects to give it lift or to give it um, propulsion. I merely pointed out as the a category of objects that if one looks through enough cases, you will come up with every 500th case might be one like this. But you're suggesting some kind of anti-gravity? I'm suggesting- or? I'm suggesting simply that they don't fit into the category of, 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 of meteorological phenomena. It's just how the phenomenon manifests. Again, in my opinion, it's how the UFO phenomenon manifests. It provides us with these kind of objects that make no sense. Uh, I mean, a cigar-shaped object hovering 20 feet above the ground for 15 minutes with no apparent lift to it, that doesn't make too much sense either, but that's how the objects are described, and that's what these objects seem to do. They, they have some kind of a mechanism of, of either generating lift that, that we haven't stumbled across, or they're just virtual images that, the, that a person's seeing. They're not maybe really there, or it's a holograph. I don't know. I could speculate all day, but that's not why I'm on your show to speculate. <laughs> well, actually, it is. <laughs> well, I that's tried exactly to why you're keep... on the show. Yeah. Well, okay. I didn't know that. I could speculate all day, but no. Seriously, I your your guess is as good as mine on any of these things. But Kevin. you're not suggesting any extraterrestrial origin for these. You have no real clue. I have no it real clue. Could be interdimensional, with... from what you're saying. Exactly right. Exactly right. I tend to think that the once we unravel everything that's going on with the UFOs, we're going to find that they're extraordinarily complex and, and very well, in my, again, in my very, very humble opinion, might involve other dimensions, whatever that quite means. But yeah, they can cut into and out of another dimension and they're here and then they're gone. Or, or we'll, we'll discover that there are a multiplicity of explanations for the phenomenon itself. You, you never know. Uh, but right. I, I tend to think we're dealing with one phenomenon but then people ask me, or I get involved in discussions, well, now we have a Bigfoot phenomenon, and now we have a lake monster phenomenon. Are all these separate phenomena, phenomena that all, all of them comprise the 40 and the field of 40 in studies, but are all these separate phenomena, UFOs, Bigfoot, uh, <laughs> things in lakes, lake, lake monsters, strange flying birds, and we haven't discovered, and, and we can't make any scientific progress in any of these areas? I just tend to lump them into the statement that the world is far more mysterious than, than we can think about or, or even wrap our minds around. Well, it's I would the argue, nature of reality. I would argue that some of these phenomena you mentioned probably are more in the realm of fantasy than they are in actuality. I, I, you know, I looked at the Bigfoot phenomenon when I began studying UFOs as well, because that was just another area that you kind of bumped into. And looking at it and understanding what I do about anthropology mm -hmm. or uh, breeding populations, you have to have X number of individuals for a viable population. And if you don't have it, that population will die out. And I can see no place in the United States, for example, where Bigfoot could hide with a viable breeding population. Well, you know, Kevin, you're 100% you're right. And I've had that conversation with, with my wife and, and with numerous people. The again, I'm speaking for myself here. I find the eyewitness testimony, and again, I'm not claiming to be an expert on Bigfoot sightings by any means. But from what I've read, and and even once spoke to a person who saw these this creature, the eyewitness testimony has the same strengths and weaknesses as does the UFO testimony. Not as many cases, maybe, but nonetheless, some of these witnesses do seem to be describing this kind of a creature. But I agree, all the corners of the the 48 contiguous states here. Uh, ha have been explored to, for the most part. There can be no populations of undiscovered beings like this existing, say, in North Carolina or New Jersey or Ohio. That doesn't make sense, but somehow these things keep getting reported. Uh, again, I, 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 I can't, I have no explanation for it, but it, I merely point out that it's a uh, an oddity of the of the universe it's we we seem to be either dimensions are interpenetrating ours or we don't see the big picture and we can't explain it it, it completely baffles me <laughs> well that's one of the reasons i kind of severed those sorts of phenomena from the ufo phenomena because when we look at the ufo phenomena we do have physical traces we do have good photographs we do have radar cases we do have the kind of evidence you'd like to 
see related to this other than of course having the craft and the bodies in our hands uh, mm -hmm. but on some of these other phenomenon and let's look at the Loch Ness monster I mean how many times have they uh, formed expeditions to find the Loch Ness monster with all the modern technology and have just come up with nothing so I think that that uh, you know we need to sever that from the UFO field Oh, I, I don't I don't lump these things in with the UFO field. And in fact, I don't like when I hear cases that tie Bigfoot in with UFOs, as I've heard over the years. Talk to Stan Gordon. Uh, but but nonetheless, that, that seemingly does occur once in a while with regard to Bigfoot. Henry Bauer of uh, the University of Virginia would beg to, to uh, differ with you on uh, the the Loch Ness Monster. But that's another story that uh, we don't need to get into. But. Uh, well, I know, I know there would be, there's advocates in all these arenas. Yeah. And I think that, that, you know, we have to look at that. And I don't think we should point a finger at a single scientist and say, well, you're crazy because you believe this, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that he may have good reason for believing it, but, uh, you know, without having a chance to sit down and discuss the evidence specifically, you have to say, well, you know, I'm not convinced that they they exist. And that's one of the things I've done with cattle mutilations over the years. You know, I've been a big um, advocate for the fact that the cattle mutilations are all terrestrially based. There's no extraterrestrial component in it. But periodically, I revisit those kinds of things to see if there's something new in that field that I have missed or some new evidence that has been presented that suggests maybe there is an extraterrestrial component to them. Mm -hmm. Well, there's there's a component there, whether, yeah, it's it's whether it's extraterrestrial or, or, or interdimensional, I, I don't know. I, I, I recently went through the uh, Skinwalkers in the Pentagon book. I don't, have, have you had a chance to read that one yet? No, I haven't looked at that. Yeah, yet. by, by Lacats, a fellow named James Lakatsky, uh, George Knapp, and uh, Colm Kelleher, all of whom were involved with the, the Bigelow and the uh, AAW, SAP, whatever they're calling it now, which was the, the predecessor to ATIP. Lakatsky was the, the first director of that advanced uh, uh, studies into UFOs there that, that were funded by the government. But nonetheless, that book is very disturbing for, for some of the reasons that we've just been speaking about. It, it very explicitly ties in very odd goings on, not only at the Skinwalker Ranch, but at other places. And, and those tie-ins are with UFOs. And I, I, I was kind of disturbed by to read how, how some of these things, some of these cases transpired and, and, and what, what, what happened to even the guy Lakatsky, who was the, the, the head of this project, when he went out to the Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, again, very explicit measurements were taken in some cases, and they described tests that were done to grow seeds and, and, and all these kind of things that Bigelow uh, uh, conducted using the, uh, the $10 million he got from the DIA to look into the, 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 the UFO connection. But it's, it, it, I, I found it to be an eye-opening book in, in that regard. I, I was infuriated by some of the other aspects of the book, but I think it is worthwhile that all people who are serious researchers in the field should give this book a look-see. It's a pretty easy read and it's not a very long book, but it's got some, it, it, it's the tr at least the true story of, of the DIA investigation into UFOs. Well, which of, Elizondo had a, a tiny part. <laughs> well, that kind of leads us to the, the next question I was gonna, I, I hadn't really thought about, but I'm sure you've read Jacques Vallée's book on Trinity, the world's best kept secret or a little kept secret or a secret we have in a sack or something. I, I haven't actually read that book, but yes, I'm aware of that case. I know what you're oh, so you don't. So you really don't have an informed opinion. Well, I have an informed opinion only because the, the, the main witness in that case well, let's, uh, let's hold that off for just a moment because I have to take a break here. I'm kind of leading, transitioning into the, into the next segment is what I was doing there. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who are paying attention, I, do, I should point out there's some very good programs on the Exome Broadcast Network and go to the Exome Broadcast Network website at xzbn.net and you can scroll down the list of programming and you'll find many things that will be of interest to you. I think you should take a look at that. And of course, a different perspective is among those programs. I also should point out that we mentioned briefly Level Land, and I've talked about Level Land on the program, and my book on Level Land dropped, as they say now in the world, uh, on January 6th. And this is a look at not only the Level Land sightings in depth with a lot of new information, but it's also a kind of a compendium of this whole electromagnetic phenomenon beginning in 1909 
the sighting in England and culminating in some of the more recent sightings that involved animals and things like that. I'll be back right after this with Rob Swiatek, so please stick around. I am back with Rob Swiatek. We are talking, not really not the way I, was, I thought we were going to be going because we kind of hung up on some of the past cases, but I think it's interesting that we we look at that stuff because it's necessary to understand what goes on in the future. And when we went away, we were beginning a discussion of other aspects of this. Uh, we were going to talk about, well, you had an opinion, I guess I should say, kind of meandering around here, an opinion of the book by Jacques Vallée of um, the UFO crash in San Antonio, New Mexico in 1945, at, near the Trinity site. You were, you said you had, uh, I hadn't read the book, but you had some thoughts on it. No, I, you know, just just one tiny thought, and I'm not going to characterize the book or say anything one way or another since I haven't read it. But th th this case somehow came across the transom of the Fund for UFO Research, or came across the transom of Don Berliner, who was the chairman of the Fund for UFO Research at the time in the, the earlier years of this century. So I'm talking 2002, 2003, something like that. And I remember a series of emails going back and forth. They either came into Don and he forwarded them, forwarded them on to me or to some other and to some other people in the fund. And I recall, uh, you know, go, going through these emails and, and, and what subsequently turned out to be <laughs> the witnesses involved in these cases were the witnesses that are involved in this book. And, and just at the time, I was very skeptical about what they had to say. And I, I suppose I could dig up those emails. I'm not sure they survived the the, the years of time, but that, that's all I have, I have to comment on. It's, this case did, didn't make a, a, this case was resurrected, I guess, with the book, but it actually began 15 years earlier or so, at least among some people in the UFO field who this, these witnesses were reaching out to contact. Well, let me, let me expand your horizon on this. I'm trying not to sound condescending on this. Uh, Don, Don Schmidt and I did a, a interview um, just before the, the, the new year. And we talked a little bit about this. He was contacted, I think he said in 96 or 97 by one of the, the uh, primary witnesses, Rami Baca. Baca, right. About it. And it sounded to Don as if Baca was talking about the crash being over on the plains of San Augustine, linking it to the Barney Barnett case. Uh, I understand that Stan Friedman was also contacted about this case. And both of them kind of looked at it and thought, no, we don't want to get involved in it. Now you've added another dimension to that with the, the information from Don Berliner and the Fund for UFO Research. It would be interesting. I think it's important if you get a chance, <laughs> and I, I hesitate to do this, but if you get a chance, you should see if you can find those emails or copies of them. Because I think, it, yeah. I think they would be a, a, an important historical document showing that these guys didn't just sort of stumble into um, the UFO community, the, they work their way into it by contacting all sorts of people on it until they got somebody who was interested in their, in their tale. I got emails and information about it back in 2010. So I've known about it for now uh, 12 years. But I think that that's important that we take a look at all of that. Mm -hmm. I read the book. It's not very coherent. <laughs> There's an awful lot of unnecessary history in it. Uh -huh. There's an awful lot of speculation in it, and there's basically a, a single witness because I don't think um, I guess I guess they did have a chance to talk to the other fellow that was involved with Baca before he he passed away, but um, it's basically single witness, so it's it's just not a very solid case. Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. the reason it's gotten so much interest is Jacques Vallée's name is on it. Sure, I was a disappointed course. in Jacques Vallée and his in his. Um, advocacy for this for this book, which moves us into where I really wanted to go on this program. And that's where we're going in ufology. And I wondered what your thoughts were on the congressional mandate to investigate UFOs and the coming so-called uh, investigation of the UFOs by the various government and intelligence agencies. Well, I, I had a chance to go over and re read that the bill that was just it was signed by Biden, I think, on December 27th, National Defense Authorization Act for 2022. And it does establish within the confines of the, of, of the Secretary of Defense uh, an office for 
there's no other way to say it, but for investigating UAP or UFO sightings, uh, where field investigations will take place. And this is a distinct difference from uh, what, what, what the, the task force was doing, for example, and they seem to be more just coordinating sightings and writing that uh, report that came on on June 25th. But now the UAP TF has been supplanted by whatever this new office is going to be. Maybe it's the Aerial Object Identification and uh, Management Synchronization Group that was also announced by the Department of Defense at the end of November. Maybe it's going to be them, but what, what, whatever it is, this, this Congressional Act, the NDAA Act of 2022, has some very explicit uh, directives that, that the government, in theory, is supposed to comply with regarding the investigation of UFOs. They're supposed to develop a science plan. They're supposed to have investigators out there in the field. They're supposed to provide uh, one annual public unclassified report and, and two uh, semi-annual reports that conceivably could be classified to Congress. And in, in each of these reports, they've got to describe all the sightings that they've, they've encountered and investigated during the, the, the previous, when the first report comes out, it'll be like during the, the previous six months and or, or, or all the 144 cases that were described in the June 25th report, the, the act actually explicitly states those details have to be given in one of those reports to Congresses, the Congress. And the first report is due 90 days after the bill was signed. So we're talking around the end of March. They have to provide their first briefing to Congress. And I think that first briefing has to include the details on the 143 cases that were in the June 25th report. So the, the, the mandate that, that, that Congress has given the Defense Department with regard to the UFO subject here is, is more than just a nine-page report. They actually have to go out there and, 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 and bust their tails looking into sightings. And, and Congress wants even details on efforts to, the word is capture, that's the word they use, capture some of these objects. And I, I would think that if the congressmen and senators who voted for this bill and, and, and fashioned the bill had thought that there was nothing but hot air and clouds and, and hoaxes to, to UFOs, they wouldn't be talking about uh, trying to capture these objects or have the details on anything that constitutes advanced technology that's beyond what we currently have in our armed forces. But haven't we seen this all before? Wasn't that sort of the mandate that came down from General Twining back in 1947 when he that, issued orders to the various commands to do exactly this sort of thing? That, 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 that is correct. They, they have succeeded in reinventing the wheel. And uh, I, I have gone through, and this is a slightly different thing, but I have gone through the statements that were made in the June 25th report. And, and, and there is nothing new in that report that wasn't said 70 years before. By, by General Twining, by General, by, by Shul, General Shulgin, by assorted uh, 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 people in, in the uh, Air Technical Intelligence Command at, and, and AMC in, in official reports that were classified at high levels. Almost no point in, in the June 25th report was there a statement made that didn't have a correlation or a correlating statement made uh, 70 years beforehand. I stand prepared to, you, you know, read those quotes or some of them, but I mean, they are there in black and white. And well, I've, I've made, you, I've you, made, you know them as well as I. I've made that argument for months. And the other thing that I noticed in the June 25th report, which I always link to the Custer Massacre, because I think mm -hmm. of both of these things as great disasters, the June 25th report to Congress plus the Custer Massacre. Um, the one thing I noticed, it also called for another report to be made 90 days later, but that report never surfaced. There was never another report made 90 days later. Well, what, what, what Congress says and what the DOD does may be two completely different things. And I, I'm, I'm completely prepared to hear them somehow twist their way out of having to give details on all these cases and present very finely granulated reports on what's going on with the UF phenomenon. But nonetheless, that, that's what the law currently is asking the Defense Department to do. Whether or not they comply is another situation, another story. Well, I think they can comply, but what they're going to do is, is 
invoke national security. And what, if I understood the, the report or the, the directions, they're only going to gather military uh, reports reported by military pilots and military personnel, not civilians. So that oh, that's correct. It, uh, absolutely. It, it, a really great sighting by a group of civilians is going to be ignored by them. Well, yeah, it, it, it will be ignored, but that's, <laughs> that, that's why no, nobody should put all their eggs in one basket with respect to what the what the government is going to do with respect to the UAP phenomenon here, or the UFO phenomenon here, and in, in my my estimation, we're only going to get answers from this that we can trust and to get the transparency that we want if this thing is done in the civilian community and in the scientific community outside of the government. Yeah, we might need to contact them about some stuff, but I look upon it any, anything we can get from this. Uh, mandate by Congress for the DOD to look into UFOs. And anything we can get regarding sightings is gravy. I will take it. It's like if a person came up to me on the street and handed me a dollar and said, oh, here's a dollar for you, Mr. Switek. I, I will probably take that dollar, even though I really don't need it. But yeah, I'll, I'll take a dollar if you want to come up and give it to me. So if, if, if the Defense Department wants to give information on these cases, I will gladly suck up this information and, and use it to try to understand what's going on. But on the other side of the coin, we had kind of a similar circumstance when the uh, Condon Committee was commissioned back in the early, or late 1960s. Uh, the University of Colorado civilians were supposedly going to look at UFOs, and they had access supposedly to all the government documents and everything else. And yet, uh, we find that there are cases that they were denied simply because of the um, umbrella of national security. I think of the Belt Montana sightings in 1967 around the missile silos there. And although some of their investigators had security clearances, although they were told to, they were going to get everything, when they got out to the Maelstrom Air Force Base, the investigator was told, we can't tell you about that. It's a matter of national security. And that was the end of it. And I think that's what we're going to see here, is they're going to invoke national security and say, well, we've got some great cases, but we can't tell you about them because there are, there's national security issues in them. Well, they, they, they've got to give, uh, they, they can give, they, they could invoke that, I suppose, and maybe nobody in Congress would be cleared to see it, but the, the semi-annual reports that they're asked to give can be classified and, and are not necessarily going to be released to the public. So I would think maybe some of the congressmen would be apprised of these cases, congresswomen, whatever, but I, I don't know. You, you could be completely correct. And that, if you want to be cynical, and, and it's not hard to be cynical in the UFO field, that's probably the, the, what might transpire we will get nothing out of it. But I would hasten to say that in 2021, uh, MUFON, for example, received over 5,000 UFO cases, of which a, a, a percentage of them were, were investigated and found to be unknowns. So I say to them, you can keep your damn sightings. You know, we, we really don't need the government investigators. Uh, we need them to investigate threats to our, our, our airspace and to into and to flight safety. But if, if they're not going to investigate sightings with a view toward advancing science, and, and that even comes out in, in, in this National Defense Act, that they, they should be looking into this to see what we can learn with respect to new science. But if we're not going to get any of that, then the hell with it. There's enough cases that just come in MUFON that, aren't un, that are unexplained, I think, to intrigue scientists outside of MUFON to, to consider the UFO phenomenon, Avi Loeb, for example, and, and, and see where these cases take them in their intellectual pursuits. But I think the problem that we're, gonna, we're going to see is, is sort of the appeal to authority, which is, well, we had the experts in the field. We had the military experts look at these cases, and uh, there's really nothing there. And uh, that's, that's sort of the end of it. There are elements of these cases that uh, impact national security. Therefore, we can't tell you everything that we've done, but we haven't found much of anything at all to suggest uh, alien visitation or anything else. And that's exactly what the Condon Committee did. And that was what was set up prior to the Condon Committee even beginning the first investigation. But before you respond, I'm going to have to take a break because I've been watching the clock once again. You got to stop <laughs> doing my that. cynical ways. Um, I am here with Rob Zwiatek. We're talking now about some of the history, of this, uh, history, some of the things that may go on in the future in the world of UFOs. And we'll be back right after this. So please stick around.
And I am back with Rob Zwiatek. I think when we went away, I was being somewhat cynical and he was being a little bit uh, optimistic about what's going to be happening in the future with the congressionally mandated UFO investigations. Um, I was worried about the history that suggests that they always find a way to keep the information hidden from us or they manage to divert the investigation into arenas that uh, don't really pay off. And when you get into the points of national security, and again, the uh, Maelstrom Air Force Base, and for those of you not familiar, uh, UFO was seen over one of the missile fields, the Minuteman missile fields, and shut down 10 missiles from outside, which supposedly was impossible to do. And yet somehow these all, this, the 10 missiles in this one flight were all shut down at the same time, which suggests an outside force of some sort could influence their capability to respond if it was necessary. So that was a national security issue. And I wonder that if they're not going to evoke the national security issue to keep the information hidden, regardless of it. And I don't know how much they're going to give Congress. And I also know that um, the people who will be preparing this in the intelligence community and the higher levels of the Pentagon and the military are experts at playing the game and avoiding answering the questions um, with a lot of nonsense. So I, I just don't have a good feeling about this, but you seem, Rob, you seem to be a little bit more optimistic than me. Well, I don't know if I'm optimistic. I'm just willing to take whatever they're willing to give. Uh, I, I, I probably would tend to err on the side of cynicism and say that, they, that it, doesn't, it wouldn't at all surprise me if they were to adopt that course that you just described. However, the cat is out of the bag with respect to the government and UFOs. The cat was out of the bag in 1948 when these top secret, in some cases, documents describe things that were well beyond the capability of, of aeronautical science back in 1947 and 1948. And then we come out with this report this year, or last year in June, that echoes the same statements, updates it 70 years to say that the objects are still managing to uh, elude our, our best technology, show up on sensors. They could conceivably constitute uh, scientific advances that, that we don't yet have in our arsenal, they, they, they can then turn around and say what, whatever they want, that, oh, it's just, it's just hoaxes, it's just misidentifications of known objects. The fact is that these documents explicitly describe a phenomenon that continues to elude our best flyers and aviators. So I would, I would argue, I would argue this point with you, though, some of the cases that you mentioned from 1948 in the estimate of the situation I'm sure you're referring to, um, which were very puzzling back then for those for those people have turned out to have very mundane and prosaic explanations. I think of the Charles Whitted case, and I know Jerry Clark and I argue about this periodically. Right. I believe that's a bowline. Very very bright meteor that confused the um, the pilots, Charles and Whitted. Uh, we have the Zon Four reentry from 1968, I think it was, uh, where some of the same things were described. Uh, the cigar-shaped craft with the square windows and the fire trailing out the back that was described by Charles Wooded. And this Zon 4 case shows us that people misperceive these things. And I can understand how it happens when you look at some of the way things break up when they re-enter the atmosphere. So I think that when we say, you know, we had these top secret uh, cases back then that showed uh, um, manufactured objects that move beyond the capabilities of our manufactured objects, I think sometimes that might be a misperception. Well, possibly so. I, I, again, I, I would fall back to say that some of these sightings were multiple witness sightings. Some of them did show up on radar. Some of them were close range sightings seen through theodolites or telescopes describing what seemed to be clearly manufactured objects. And, and the, the, the military top people had <laughs> access to these cases or they knew about these cases. There, there was a briefing before uh, the Air Technical and Intelligence Center I, at Wright Pad in 1952, and I, I, none of the people who gave the briefings are, are familiar to me, their names. I, some, someone tried to obliterate them from the document, but I can see them dimly through. <laughs> they didn't succeed, let's put it that way. But anyhow, they, they gave briefings on the UFO subject, and the majority of cases that they were speaking about in that briefing, they, they had several hundred cases. They said that they couldn't explain, and the briefer said, we have run up against a completely blank wall on these on these sightings. Now, these people weren't idiots, Kevin, and you know that. I mean, uh, we're, we're talking, we, we still knew how to build aircraft in 1952 
that could fly at least twice the speed of sound. So we did know something about how aviation and technology works. And uh, I, I cannot for uh, the life of me ever, I'll use the word believe, I don't like using that word, but I can never accept that uh, or believe that there, was, there, there were no good cases back there that they couldn't explain. There absolutely were. And you know, they, they demonstrated the same kind of movements and the same kind of uh, baffling behavior that the objects describe today. The phenomenon has re, you know, remained consistent. I think you missed a good debating point. Uh, didn't I just have an article in the MUFON journal about a sighting in Array, New Mexico by scientists who's correct? You did the object through uh, you did there instrumentation and that sort of thing, which is very very inexplicable sighting. Uh, <laughs> so you you had I haven't got I haven't got my copy yet. Well, but uh, I did see the article. But yeah, I haven't I haven't got my. But copy. yes, I know you saw yeah, the it's, article. It's coming. It's coming out. <laughs> well, um, and we look forward to more. By the way, too, keep them coming. You, you but you can't uh, you can't can't access it online. No, I could. I did see the sighting since I, I help edit the journal. So yes, I know. Yeah, I I, I could pull it up in you know ten seconds here. <laughs> well, I, what I've noticed is the MUFON journal always shows up on the first of the month online. You may not have the hard copy. You're correct. Yeah, I, I don't usually. Yeah, that, that's correct. So I I just thought you missed a great debate point there when you could have said that. And but my point has been this: um, that sighting, while very interesting and and conducted by scientists and Charles Moore of. Project Vogel fame was the scientist who mm -hmm. was involved in that uh, with this unidentified sighting uh, and the one who has come up with the Project Mogul nonsense. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 an interesting, it's an interesting case, but by the same token, you don't have um, physical evidence. You have the witness testimony and the fact that they were able to observe it through instrumentation, which makes it a better case. And it was in sight for a, more than a minute. And that's always important that they get a chance to take a good look at it. Mm -hmm. but, but I think there's always going to be inexplicable sightings, no matter, matter what. Even if we do not have alien visitation, I think we're always going to end up with, um, with, with uh, inexplicable sightings. Because there's always going to be maybe a key element missing from the descriptions or the information well, provided. Yeah, certainly true. Certainly true. But I, as I said, I worry about the enthusiasm which was these investigations will be made by whomever is appointed to in, investigate them and what their mandate may be from the chains of command you know uh, I, at one point we were supposed to be or they were supposed to be making good investigations of ufos through project blue book and i think when rupelt was there that's exactly what happened he did a he tried his hardest with the resources he had to make good investigations and gather the proper data. But after he left, it became no, more of a dunking outfit. Yeah. And I can see it de devolving into the same sort of thing once again um, by those who, for whatever reason, don't want to see um, more information about UFOs or, or better information or more authoritative information about UFOs. Well, I, yeah, I, I, again, I, I, that's not going to surprise me at all. If, if it turns out that way. Uh, but, but nonetheless, if, if, if through my own, when I give talks or when I appear on, on, your, on your, your radio show here, uh, and if I can persuade anybody in the mainstream community that there's something worth looking into in the UFO subject, then I will have considered my, my time spent to be well spent for the past 50 years in the UFO subject. But ultimately, it's going to have to be the, again, I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate it, the civilian scientific community and engineering community and academic community and intelligent people outside of the military who are going to have to get involved in the UFO subject if we ever hope to, quote, solve it, unquote. I think it's already solved in the sense of it being a non-human intelligence, but really to peel off the layers of this thing and figure out what's going on. Because for the points you enunciated, I'm not sure we can ever really trust the government. Hopefully we, we can trust them to be looking into cases that involve our national security. So at some level, even if I never hear about some of these sightings, I hope that they're taking them seriously. And if it is a threat to this country, be it a Soviet or Chinese threat, a Russian or Chinese threat, or even an extraterrestrial threat, that they are, are, are looking into these things and taking the, the steps needed to try to counteract this, this phenomenon, if indeed it's a threat. I look at a case that was just from January 3rd of this year, where a 
photograph or video was taken from an airliner over, over Georgia of some lights, just, just some lights. Some people think it's a reflection and some people think it may be something, something other than that, which is not to me the important point. The important point was the, the captain of the airliner refused to make a report to the FAA. And I think he feared the ridicule factor or his, his role being diminished in his environment because he had reported a UFO. Uh, I don't know how they're going to overcome that. Well, not all, not all the pilots do that. There was a good video that was filed uh, with, with MUFON taken by the captain of an aircraft, a commercial airliner. Uh, I think it was in December of 2020 or something like that. Uh, a 50 second video of what appeared to be a cigar-shaped object flying a number of thousands of feet below his aircraft. He took it with his cell phone through, through the window of the airplane. Again, it seems a very peculiar object, but he filed his case with MUFON and the case received an investigation. So obviously not every pilot is going to, uh, to, to, to not- This pilot, this pilot also made the report to MUFON. My point is he didn't make it to the FAA. He didn't make it to his corporate headquarters. He made it to MUFON anonymously. Well, that may be, but the, the, the case still is getting an investigation and the details of his case, sans his name and, and, and personal details, could very well then be the basis of a study, something that appears in a magazine in, in, in general circulation. So the point is, his case is out there in the public, regardless of whether or not he chose to report it to the FAA or his airline or the-, or but the I, I think But I think you missed my point. And it's simply that there's a hesitancy by those people we would like to have involved in this to get involved in this. You know, here's a pilot, he doesn't want to really get involved with it, but he gets the information out there. The problem is if we don't know who the pilot is, we don't know the airline, we don't know some of those details, then that case becomes less credible. Well, most of these guys do give their names to MUFON, okay? And so the, the names are known to the investigators. It's, it's kind of rare that a person uh, doesn't give any, any information whatsoever completely anonymous. As I understand it, the MUFON investigators are not supposed to uh, give a disposition to a case like that in terms of explained or unexplained. They're just supposed to set it aside as an information only case. But we need to, to, to know at least contact details for the person and their name. So uh, I, I, I couldn't get the guy's name if I were to look on CMS, though I could ascertain in looking at CMS case, this case management system, if the fellow did indeed give his name or the woman did give her name, it, it would, that would be there. So the, they, they are giving the details of their cases. Uh, that, at least from my point, point of view, that's a, a plus. Well, I think we're gonna have to end it there. We're just, we're just out of time. I had a few other directions I wanted to go, but we didn't get to them. Rob, I want to thank you for taking an hour today to talk about UFOs uh, with me here. And uh, I think provide some good information about what's going on and where we may be going into the future. It's always a pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Right. For those of you who are interested, um, I have a book out now called Level Land, which uh, details the case the Level Land case. I think there's some information in there that I was able to discern through going through the records, as, as Rob and I talked about, uh, going through the newspaper files and things like that. They've not gotten a, a good play. And I'll, I'll give you a hint about one of them. That is the um, sheriff. When he was interviewed by the Air Force, said, well, he just saw a streak of light in the distance, as, as recorded in the Air Force file. But before that, he was quoted in newspapers of having gotten much closer and seeing a noble-shaped object. That documentation is out there in the newspapers from 1957. And later on, Don Berliner, who uh, Rob mentioned, also talked about uh, the sheriff getting closer and seeing an object like that. So I think you need to take a look at, uh, at Level Land if you want to get an idea of what these electromagnetic effects are about and how that works. Project uh, Moondust, which is a book I did a couple of decades ago, actually, has been updated and be out in March. So I'm continuing to work in that direction. I will have some more information about some of this stuff on my blog in the next uh, few days or so. So take a look there at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. You have been listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And thank you for tuning in.